Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word uh, that will help us to trust and follow Jesus. Uh, We pray you will give us understanding and especially understanding of how it does inform our lives as followers of Jesus and we would uh, put it into practice. And gracious Father, we pray that you would help me teach your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, How should we live? That's not a uniquely Christian question, is it? Uh, People have always wanted to know what's the right way to live, the way that promotes the flourishing of individuals and societies that leads to just relationships and a safe community. And part of the Christian answer to the question, how should we live, In fact, a large part of that answer, shaping Christian moral intuition, have been what are called the Ten Commandments, which you heard in Deuteronomy 5. The Ten Commandments have dominated Christian moral instruction for centuries. So you will, for example, uh, find the section on Christian living in most of the major Reformed catechisms organised around the Ten Commandments. Should they have that place? Can we, should we, still look to them for foundational moral instruction? Given to Israel, why and how should they be adopted by Christians? Why should they be taught, as I have urged you, uh, by Christian parents to their children? And as we uh, engage in what might seem kind of theoretical questions, uh, let's remember that we live in a society where, as part of the debate on religious freedom, Some people accuse Christians who take the Bible seriously of wanting to stone blasphemers because it's written in the Old Testament. Uh, I actually heard that as part of a discussion on Radio National uh, this morning. So, important questions, not just about how we live, but in a sense how we explain the Old Testament to people in our society how it helps us be followers of Jesus. Now, we're going to look uh, <clears throat> to spend two weeks looking at Deuteronomy 5. In Today, we're going to look at the context in which Moses repeats on the plains of Moab these Ten Commandments given first at Mount Horeb. And we're going to answer the question just asked, given to Israel, why and how should they be adopted by Christians? Because it's by looking at these commandments in their context, both in Deuteronomy and Israel's history, that we will be reminded of the most obvious and important thing about the ten and their role in our life, and that is Israel's failure to keep them. That's actually our starting point for thinking as Christians about how they can help us live as followers of Jesus. And then in the following week, we'll look at the content of their teaching to see how good it is, how these words direct our love of God and neighbour. Now, just to spend one week on them after I've said they've got a foundational role might seem very brief, Uh, but actually what we'll see is that the rest of this second speech of Moses, a speech that starts in chapter 5, verse 1, but goes all the way to the end of chapter 26. The rest of this speech is actually the application to Israel's new life in the land of these ten words. That is, we'll see in the chapters that follow what a life committed to these norms, these 
standards looks like in the particular context of Israel's life in the land and seeing how they apply these ten in their context will actually give us a model for applying these same norms to our particular lives in the here and now. So the rest of Deuteronomy will show us how to move from these general principles to obedience to God in every detail of our lives. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So having concluded his first speech, chapters 1 to 4, Moses continues to give the people what's translated here as law, but as we saw in chapter 1, it is actually Torah instruction here on the plains of Moab. And so the people listen to this speech conscious that they're on the border of the land about to enter it, that in fact... With the defeat of Sion and Og, some of the tribes have already come into possession of their portion of the land. So how are they going to live in this new land? How will they conduct themselves so that they will continue to live in the land? Moses, as a good pastor, is now going to equip them to live as the Lord's people in Canaan, the land the Lord, their God, will give them. And so 5.1, he gathers them and it says, all Israel. And that really is all Israel. These words are addressed, as we'll see, not just to those alive then, but consciously to every future generation, to all Israel who are and who will be. And like a good preacher, he sets out the goal of his speech right at the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I'm speaking in your hearing today and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So every Israelite listening to Moses knows the required response, what in a sense the application of the sermon is. You might, of course, sometimes wonder at the end of my sermons what the application is, but the Israelites had no excuse. This is what it is. Hear the statutes and the rules. Statutes and rules, uh, uh, that's a subset of the phrase we heard in 445, Testimony, statutes and rules. Now, some combination of those terms and similar ones is frequent in Deuteronomy and they speak of commands where obedience is expected, standards that govern life and against which behaviour can be measured, customs that are to regulate practice. So they've got to hear, pay attention so that they've understood what's being taught. They've got to learn. They actually have to internalise these statutes and rules, and they're to hear and learn so that they can apply. They are to be careful to do, be careful to live their lives in conformity to this instruction. That's the take-home message for the Israelites. Hear, learn, do. But that's actually, as we'll see, going to be very demanding because the statutes and rules that Moses teaches in the following chapters embrace the whole of an Israelite's life where they can worship their calendar, what they can wear, what they can sow in their fields, what they can eat, how they should relate to their non-Israelite neighbours, the provision they should make for their less well-off neighbours, how they'll settle disputes, who they can marry, what to do when marriage is not working out. And it would be easy for some to say as they hear, why? Why should I live that way? Why should I give up some of my crop to support the poor? Oh, why? And this is challenging, Deuteronomy 13. Why should I share in the 
execution of a neighbour who goes and worships other gods. Who says so? Why? Why should I listen, learn and do? So Moses starts this second speech that goes to the end of chapter 26 by giving them three reasons to motivate their listening and their obedience, to help them commit to the life he is outlining. This is the first reason. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. He says, you're the people of the Lord God. You're in covenant relationship with him. Well, what is it to be in a covenant relationship with someone? What's a covenant? It's not a language we use often. Well, a covenant is the formalisation of a relationship and the regulation of that relationship, a relationship that isn't what's called a natural relationship. A natural relationship is a, a relationship, say, between a parent and a child. It just, in a sense, is, and it carries naturally with it certain obligations. But there are other relationships that aren't natural relationships. Take marriage, for example. You can have a marriage covenant. It's not a natural relationship. There's nothing obligatory about this particular man marrying this particular woman. And so the relationship is formalised in a public commitment. And what's involved in the relationship is made clear in the promises, the commitments made to each other. And in those days, covenants could exist between nations, they could exist between a king and his subject people. Now, while the Lord is the creator of all, and so all are in relationship with the Lord and owe him honour and thanks by the very act of creation, not all are redeemed by the Lord. The Lord has particularly redeemed Israel out of all the nations on the earth, as Moses reminded them in chapter 4. Now, that's not a natural relationship. It's one arising by a deliberate choice of the Lord. And the Lord's relationship with Israel is not brought about by the covenant, is it? The Israelites didn't earn a relationship with God by their obedience. The relationship was brought about by God's gracious redeeming of them out of slavery in Egypt and faithful to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So God's gracious action preceded any doing on their part, preceded the covenant. And then at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, that relationship that's been brought about, brought into being by God's saving action is formalised. That is, both parties, the Lord and Israel, consciously commit themselves to the relationship and they consciously commit themselves to the requirements of the relationship. So the Lord outlines his commitment in Exodus 19, that he would be the God of Israel, who would be his special people, his treasured possession, a people he is committed to hearing and saving, set apart as his own, holy to him. And on Israel's part, they had committed to obeying the Lord. Moses took the book of the covenant there 40 years ago and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said... All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. In this covenant, the Lord is king in Israel and Israel's committed themselves to live under his rule. Israel entered covenant relationship with the Lord at Horeb. And Moses is very direct and clear that the Lord made this covenant with his present 
hearers on the plains of Moab. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, not with our fathers, and the sense there is not only with our fathers, those who are present there at Horeb, did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face. Isn't that remarkable? Because Moses has just said in Deuteronomy 4, you saw no form. And so face to face is a way of speaking that actually brings home to them that they were directly and personally addressed by the Lord. But how can Moses say that the Lord made a covenant with us, all of us here alive today, when more than half of his hearers, everyone under 40, was not even born when Israel entered into covenant with the Lord? How can he say it? Well, it's because what was spoken to Israel, gathered at Sinai, was spoken to the nation and so spoken to every Israelite who has ever lived and would ever live. You see, the Lord knew he was addressing, speaking to the nation Israel, the continuing nation, generation after generation. They were there being addressed by God. And it's actually only as every succeeding generation knows themselves as addressed by the Lord there and respond with trusting obedience that they are Israel, included in God's people. So Deuteronomy from the outset is telling the Israelites that it's actually never just by physical descent that you are an Israelite. It's always through hearing the word and committing yourself in obedience to the Lord who spoke it. And you know what? We're about to remember that it's actually the same for us in the New Covenant. It's only as you know yourself being addressed by the Lord Jesus at the Last Supper that the words he spoke there to the first disciples are spoken to you and you receive them with faith, believing what Jesus says about his saving work on the cross, that you are included in the covenant, in the new covenant. But we'll think about that when we come to the supper. Having said that the Lord made a covenant with them, Moses then recites the Ten Commandments given at Sinai. The content of the covenant, what they had in summary committed themselves to. In fact, in Deuteronomy 4.13, Moses had said that these ten words are actually the covenant. He declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. Moses is making the point that the covenant had always required a commitment to live by the Lord's standards. So Moses is saying to those Israelites on the plain, you are already committed to living the Lord's way. That's the right response to the grace he's shown in bringing you out from Egypt. It is the substance of your relationship with him that's actually what makes you the Lord's people and it's as the Lord's people that you will live in the Lord's land. So says Moses, what I am asking you to hear, when I am asking you to hear, learn, do, I'm not asking anything new of you. I'm actually just calling you to live in the new situation in the land as you have already committed yourself to live as the Lord's people. Now, why are the Ten Commandments a suitable summary of Israel's commitment? 
let's think briefly about them, in a sense, in preparation for next week, about the place, the role of these commandments. Now, these ten are unique from the beginning. Uh, They actually have a special name. They're, They're not called the Ten Commandments. They're actually distinguished from the other commands and statutes by being called either the Ten Words or just the Words. And they have, as we've heard, a special delivery. They are spoken directly to the people by the Lord. And then they have a special place. They're inscribed in tablets, and we're told by the finger of God, by the work of God, as a fixed and permanent record and placed in the ark, in the heart of the tabernacle, in the heart of their camp, in the heart of their life. More, the Israelites are actually addressed in these ten individually. It's actually a singular you. Each Israelite listening is called upon to share in the responsibility to live as the covenant people of the Lord. And unlike the statutes and commandments that follow, there are actually no punishments attached to these ten. And we see in verse 22 that Moses distinguishes them from everything else. These words, the Lord spoke to all your assembly, and notice, and he added no more. These ten are actually the foundational principles of the relationship between the Lord and Israel. And we'll see they're not arbitrary, but reflect the reality of the relationship between the Lord and his people. They cover how to honour the Lord as he's revealed himself in saving them and how the Lord would have himself be honoured in his people's treatment of each other, his subjects. These are laws that protect their fellow Israelites' participation in the blessings of the covenant by protecting the fellow Israelites' life, marriage, property and reputation. And while we may not see it at first, they're actually the charter of a free people, how a people free from slavery live freely. As one commentator has said, these are actually written to be absolute, universal and permanent. And the statutes and rules that Moses gives in the rest of this speech all the way up to the end of chapter 26, what, what, what they are doing is applying these already given universal principles to their new situation in the land. Now we'll see that as we go through chapters 6 to 26, but let me just give you two examples to whet your appetite. So the ninth commandment forbids bearing false witness. You'll find in Deuteronomy 19 the punishment prescribed for false witnesses, malicious witnesses. The sixth commandment prohibits the taking of innocent life. In Deuteronomy 22, there's actually a regulation of house building that's given to protect the lives of others by building a parapet around the roof so nobody falls off. So these ten principles, you can think of them in turn like the skeleton of the response that God requires from his people. Muscle and flesh are put on the skeleton by the statutes and rules so that the nation Israel, a a particular political state, has a functioning law code. Or you could think of them as Israel's constitution that will then find expression in particular circumstances in the legislation that Moses gives. So... Coming back, why should Israel listen, learn and do? 
Well, Moses says to them, you've already committed yourself to listening and doing in the covenant with the Lord. And that covenant is the source of your identity as the Lord's people and your title deed to possession of the land. And what I'm about to teach you is just the application of these already committed to principles in your new circumstances. The second reason why they should listen, learn and do is because these statutes and rules which Moses will teach are actually the statutes and rules given to them by the Lord. For Moses is the one chosen to be the mediator, the go-between between them and the Lord. Now, we think of the mediator as one who mediates a settlement between parties in a dispute who are differing but often equal, helping them, in a sense, to come to a mutual agreement. But that's not how to think of a mediator here. Moses is the one who will see communicates between two separated parties. He bridges the gap between parties that are unequal. He'll bring the Lord's message to his people and he'll intercede with the Lord for the people. And Moses reminds them that he has this role at their request. You see, their experience at Horeb was awesome and overwhelming. This great fire will consume us. And while wondering how they had survived, for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived, while wondering how they'd survived, they then go on and cheerfully volunteer Moses to risk death on their behalf. You go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And at the same time as they volunteered Moses, they committed Verse 31, to doing what the Lord speaks to them through Moses. Speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And the Lord agreed with their nomination. They're right in all that they've spoken. With the consequence, verse 31, that all Moses will say in the speech to come in the remaining chapters of this speech, the commandment, the statutes and the rules, is the Lord's instruction that they should do, the instruction of their king. Hear, learn and do. Because you're in covenant relationship with the Lord as your king, because what you will hear is the word of the Lord your king spoken by the mediator you are committed to obeying. And the third reason that they should hear, learn and do is that it is the means God gives them of enjoying their possession, of enjoying life in the land, of coming to enjoy their hope. See how that promise, did you hear how that promise of blessing is repeated right up to the conclusion of this introduction in 6.3 where Moses repeats his opening phrase of 5.1, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Say, so take verse 33. You shall walk in all the way the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Or chapter 6, that verse 2, that you may fear the Lord, that your days may be long. Verse 3, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly. Being careful to do these statutes and rules is the path of life and long possession of the land. So really, this is a very powerful, motivating introduction, isn't it? He's saying, hear, learn, do. Because you're in a covenant, 
And that covenant's got norms of relationship because you have a mediator who speaks the word of God because this is the way of possessing your hope and seeing that introduction highlights the problem. The very terms, the, the content of this encouragement highlights the issue. And that is Israel broke the covenant. They refused to listen to the mediator or any of the other prophets the Lord sent and they lost their hope. They lost the land. Israel failed to listen, learn and do. They failed to keep the covenant. In fact, that failure, as we heard, is anticipated by the Lord even here. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. In fact, Israel's failure is prophesied by Moses at God's command at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 32 in a song that the Lord commanded Moses to teach the people as a witness against their rebellion. This is just a sample. They stirred him, that's the Lord, to jealousy with strange gods. First command, no other gods before me. With abominations they provoked him to anger. That failure to listen learn and do is actually the distinctive feature of Israel's history, repeated again and again throughout their history. It starts early in Judges, right after the death of Joshua. It continues through the splitting of the people into the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. It, well, this is how Hosea speaks of the northern kingdom. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals. In fact, this is how the book of Kings sums up their disobedience un until they are deported from the land. They would not listen. They despised his statutes and his covenant. They abandoned, verse 16, all the commandments of the Lord their God until the Lord removed them out of his sight. Yet even though the north was deported to Assyria, those ten tribes lost the land Judah, the southern kingdom, did not learn. They continued not listening, not learning, not doing. And so God, through the prophets, pronounced his judgment on them, a judgment that brings us back to Moses' words here in Deuteronomy. They broke my covenant, the covenant I made when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that covenant Oh, and rather than having a heart to do the Lord's will, they had, in the words of Ezekiel, a heart of stone, entirely unresponsive to the Lord, stubbornly not listening or learning. And so they lost the land. They lost the land, and when Judah returned from exile, after that exile in Babylon, well, yes, they did commit to the law with Ezra, but they corrupted it to a mere external conformity, a half-hearted show as we can see in Malachi and then in the Gospels where they rebel against their covenant king by killing his son. Now why? Why did they not listen, not learn and not do? Was there any defect in what the Lord had asked of them? No. His law, as we'll see, is clear, it's accessible and good. Well, is it because the Jews were especially bad? No. It's because 
they're actually like us. Under the power of sin, all are under sin, none is righteous. It's because they, like us, have hearts that turn away from loving God to pleasing ourselves. In fact, that's part of what the Jewish experience of the law is meant to show us, the human heart. That because of our hearts that, like Adam, are determined to disobey God's word, no one will be able to justify themselves by doing the law, no matter how good that law is. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And it's this reality that we have to remember as we come to think about these wonderful and thoroughly good ten words. Israel failed to keep them and came under the law's judgment. Left to ourselves, we will fail and these laws will condemn us, do condemn us. That's right, if we think that we can just adopt the Ten Commandments, live them out as law and the basis for our relating to our Creator God on our own, we are doomed. And so we can't read these and just adopt them as law in themselves. But the structure of Moses' encouragement to the people, covenant, mediator, hope, also points beyond itself, like all of scripture, to Jesus and what he has done. Moses himself prophesied a time when God himself would make his people's keeping the covenant possible, when they would be given what he calls circumcised hearts, hearts that are set apart to God. And what Moses prophesied there in Deuteronomy, Jesus has brought to pass. Believers are called now to listen and do because of and in a new and better covenant. And we're instructed, brought the word of God by a new and better mediator, one who not only instructs, brings God's word, but saves, reconciles estranged parties in himself. And because of his mediation, we actually have a better hope a hope so sure that the author of Hebrews can say, we in a sense come to our inheritance, Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. A hope so sure that the Apostle Paul, who knows of our struggle with sin, can say nothing at all will separate us from the love of God forever. We have this new covenant, this greater mediator, this sure hope of a new heaven and earth, because our Lord Jesus has fulfilled this law. That's right. He is the real Israelite whose life confirmed perfectly to these ten words. Tested in the wilderness as Israel was, but without sin, quoting Deuteronomy. Oh, he's the faithful prophet whose teaching brings out to the fullest what God looks for and expects in his people's relationship with himself and others. And he is in his death, the one in whom the law's righteous judgment on lawbreakers is executed to the full and in bearing our sin secures our hope forever. Through this death for sin, he brings into being the new covenant and he can do that for he is God come amongst his people. 
Now, I know that there's a lot of theology, a lot to unpack there. But I've kind of put it in to prepare us for, in a sense, all that will follow in Deuteronomy because it's only as we recognise Israel's failure to keep the law and Christ's fulfilment of the law in his life, teaching and death that we can understand how these ten words can guide us in how we should live and that we can be encouraged by covenant, mediator and hope to keep listening, learning and doing as we go through Deuteronomy. And we actually need to listen, learn and do to these ten and all that follows. You see, in the new covenant that Christ brings into being, the new covenant in which we are now included through believing his word, not only are we forgiven for all our failure to live as God commands, it also says that God's law there in Jeremiah 31, God's law is written on our hearts. By God's spirit, our hearts are changed. We are given a new heart that wants to do God's will, that delights in his righteous law, that can listen and learn. But of course, it's never as a means of becoming righteous, only in gratitude for being made righteous, right with God through faith in Christ because of his death. And it's never now as the means of securing our hope, for that's done in the death of Jesus but only is the expression of a life full of a sure hope. That's right, you won't love God as he deserves unless you are confident he will raise you from the dead. Oh, and we listen, learn and do never independent of the law being fulfilled in Christ, but only as it's been fulfilled and now comes to us in Christ's teaching because that's what it is to be a disciple one who is now committed not to doing the law Moses brings for the nation of Israel, but to doing all that the Lord Jesus has commanded us. And the Lord Jesus, as you have heard, teaches us that the whole law depends on loving God and loving neighbour. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and you'll love your neighbour as yourself. There can be no obedience unless what we do is characterised by both love of God and love of neighbour. And the place of the law, as we'll see, including these ten words, is in teaching us how to love God and love our neighbour. In fact, Jesus himself, speaking as one who fulfils the law, gives us instruction on how the law teaches us to love on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So, for example... You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intents already committed adultery. Jesus uses the ten to teach us of the love that the Lord our God requires. And Jesus' apostle Paul reminds us of that when he says in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law because to love our neighbour, 13.9, summarises what the ten words requires in our treatment of our neighbour. And he reminds us of this when he says in Galatians 
that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now we'll start to unpack what that looks like next week, how these ten words teach us how to love God and love our neighbour and how that prepares us for all that follows. But let's come back to the questions we asked at the beginning. Can we, should we, still look to the ten words for foundational moral instruction? Yes, they are the word of our God, expressing what he loves and hates. And our hearts have been changed by Jesus to want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Given to Israel, why and how should they be adopted by Christians? Well, only as Christians. That is, those who know they're sinners, who of themselves cannot please God, no matter how good the laws, but who also know that Jesus has fulfilled the law for them in his life, his teaching and his death, and who have put their faith in him to be righteous before God. Those who know that their inheritance is in the new heaven and earth and not in any nation state now, so they don't have to enact punishments. Oh, those who know that the Lord Jesus is the one who will teach us how to love our neighbour and love God as his followers from these words. And these words should be taught to our children for you can only understand the power of the summary when you know what it summarises. To tell children to love without telling them what it is to love as God has commanded is to launch their moral ship rudderless into the sea of life in a world where love is a confused and abused word. So here Moses, as he starts his second speech, listen, learn and do, that's the take home, but we do it as followers of Jesus. Jesus who has fulfilled the law in his life, in his teaching, in his death for us and who now come to the law, come to the ten and all that follows as those who are committed to loving God and loving their neighbour as our loving Lord has commanded us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would so work in our hearts by your spirit that we would come to love what you love and hate what you hate. And we thank you for this word that will teach us how to love you and love our neighbour. Give us such confidence in Jesus, in his death for us on the cross, that we won't receive it just as a word that will condemn us, but that we'll receive it as a word that will free us to live lives of love that please you and honour our Saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.